another episode of You and I for the Kenai. Today I'm here with Eric and Cobran. We got another recovery story today, but first I must mention, um, I got to shout out Serenity Intake Office for the amazing snack selection that Eric will not let me consume, <laughs> which is unfortunate for everybody. But on a lighter note, we got Aaron here today. We're excited to hear your story. How Hi. are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited. Um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of kicking us off, telling us a little bit about yourself. Oh, Lord. Um, my name's Aaron McGann. My uh, family's been here since the 40s. I've been here ever since. I was born and, you know, what can I tell you? What do you want to know? Where I'm from, what I did, who I am. All of it. Okay, my family, like I said, has been here forever. We've been out in Akiski. Uh, grew up a pretty normal life, you know. Getting dirty, playing on dirt bikes. Um, never really wanted for anything. And, well, let's say when I was about 15, I found substances and I liked them. Um, you know, everybody tried to sniff glue, I think, but I was just the kid who liked the glue. Sure. <laughs> I took the glue bottle home. I didn't leave it there. Um, because I had some things happen when I was a little kid and, uh, the substances seemed to help. So sure. ran on a runner for quite a while and here we are today. So pretty much from, uh, 15, 15 going. 15 going. I mean, yeah. you, you, um, you started using a little bit at 15 and then it was... It was just like everybody, you know, what I thought was normal. Um, everyday high school kid, you know, playing sports and drinking on the weekends. Okay, um, okay. Mine just continued. Uh, when everybody else was in class in college, I was waking up. Um, you know, I, I went to UAA, got some student loans, don't got a degree. <laughs> under why. Um, but no, from about 15 on, it was what I would consider normal, and then it just progressed from there. Just like anything, you do something enough, you're going to do it more, and you're going to do it more, and you're going to do it more. Um, and my drinking got a little out of hand towards the end. So uh, when did you start to think, like, because it's always interesting when people start to think maybe my drinking is a problem or like everything in my life is a problem but my drinking is fine. When did you kind of start to think maybe I or maybe I have a drinking problem or was there a time when people were saying to you like, hey, Aaron, we think you might, you know, be drinking a little too much. Like what was that experience like, I guess, as far as you get what I'm saying? Um, like recognizing, recognizing there was a problem or maybe just like, maybe something, something maybe I'm ain't not, right. right. I'm yeah, not yeah. doing this normally. Yeah. Uh, I, when I would say I was about 25. Really? Um, so you had a solid 10 years of 10 years pretty of strong no, binge yeah, drinking? Oh yeah. That I knew it. Oh, binge drinking. Shoot. That was easy. I drank every day. Sure. Um, sure. About the time I was 25, I started to realize, I started to think that maybe there was something abnormal. Um, but I, at 25, I was a slope worker, and I didn't drink for my two weeks at work. So I wasn't a drinker. Right, right. But the biggest seller in the commissary on the slope is NyQuil. There's a reason for that. Sadly enough, you would think it would be something else, but it is NyQuil. Huh. Because of the alcohol content. You're able to go to sleep mm -hmm. those first couple nights. Um you know, you're making $80,000 a year and you're flying back to the slope and you've got to borrow money to buy the ticket. 
you might have a problem with spending. Yeah. You know, a brand new truck, a brand new snow machine, and no gas in either one of them. Yeah. Um, but at about 25, I'd say I started to notice there was an issue. I guess that's, that is interesting because we do see this quite mm-hmm. often. We, I think we're seeing it again, hearing it again, is kind of we see uh, work really be able to mask or blind people from their problems or mask people's problems to some pretty large extents, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen a mixture of this with either slope working or, you know, other kind of oil rig working or, like, fishing especially as well. Yep. And basically what we keep coming back to is this cultural component where there's a strong emphasis on working hard and playing hard mm-hmm. and that as long as you're working hard, there's no such thing as too hard of playing hard. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like, and the fact of the matter is that so I'm you, right? I'm not. But let's say I'm... <laughs> Let's say, and I have an addiction, so I'm a little, you know, I have that ability to rationalize my addiction away to extreme degrees for the most part. And I'm sitting there, you know what I'm thinking? Dude, I literally am sober 50% of my life. I'm not going to count NyQuil, obviously. Like, when I'm in my rationalization process, I'm like, I'm literally sober 50% of my life. And other parts of, you know, I'm thinking, like, that's pretty dang good. And, Mm -hmm. like, that's not bad. Like... Well, it's probably better than some people. Yeah. And like with the fishing as well, we see people go out and they're not drinking hardcore, you know, on the boat mm-hmm. or anything. I mean, they're going out for 30, 60, 90 days making, mm-hmm. you know, 30, 60, 90 K. Yep. And I think we see this especially, and you'd probably see it in other places as well, but I think we've definitely been able to really locate it now and identify it quite mm-hmm. quickly at this point. And like very much, I mean, in a very local kind of niche almost where like Alaska especially is very like work hard play hard you know with the slope and with fishing and with all these kind of major like major markets for this kind of behavior you know what I mean it's very easy to kind of get wrapped up and it's passed on and it's just kind of accepted you know so it's not it's not a problem until it's a problem then it's too late well anybody that's ever worked on the slope or flown back and forth from the slope you get on the plane and you're going to work. That flight is quiet the whole way there. Nobody's talking. Depressing. Everybody's headed back to work. They've got their mindset in. I'm going to do my job. Mm. You get on the plane to fly home. First 15 minutes, it's quiet. Get up to altitude. Drink cart comes out. That plane does not shut up till the minute it lands in Anchorage. People are laughing. They're telling stories. They're in a good mood have a great R&R, you know, everybody's looking forward to that time of play. And it's an attitude that you learn up there from the old guys. Mm-hmm. You know, people that work normal jobs, they'd look and they'd go, wait, you make how much money a year? And you have this, how many new shiny trucks do you guys see driving through town with snow machines in the back? Yeah. But those guys are, you know, and a lot of them really do well with the money. And they live that lifestyle well, but it's so easy for you to get into or go the direction I did with that money and that play hard, constant attitude. Mm-hmm. And it runs off on you quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was uh, listening to uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, and he was talking about how at some point there are some temptations that you just can't afford, and that's good. Because if you have a large amount of money, it becomes infinitely harder because there's these avenues that open up to support a kind of lifestyle. Because, mm-hmm. like, I couldn't drink every night because I wouldn't be able to afford that. Like, and I, I mean, I guess you can, you can take out loans or, or what have you, but, uh, 
it's not sustainable. Dude, you'd have a problem. <laughs> yeah. 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 You'd have a problem. <laughs> Whoa, I yeah. think we need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> right, but it's just like uh, when, when you have that, like 80000 a year, it's like, well, what am I going to do with this? And, and you, you're working so hard on the slope, and you just want to have a good time. So, so I can understand how that mentality kind of develops. Dude, I mm-hmm. understand. That. that makes a lot of sense, honestly. Because I remember, like, thinking back to high school, I mean, like, just trying to get, like, pot or something, you know? I mean, like, I only get 20 bucks a week for lunch, so how am I going to stretch this to 10 and 10 and still go to Taco Bell and get two burritos a day from the dollar menu and still have 10 bucks left? Like... Yeah, buy twenty dollars worth of weed and sell half of it. Sorry, that was yeah, If only I could afford this and like, <laughs> yeah, dude, that like that freedom's honestly. Well, and, and an issue. when I was in that that making money and running and playing the way that I was, I never had enough. Mm-hmm. I always wanted more. Yeah. And since I made these changes, I make a third of the money I was making. My bank account is twice what it was. And my personal happiness is through the roof. I am 10 times the person I was. And I make a third of what I was making. Mm -hmm. So I learned that lesson quickly that money is not going to, money doesn't fix it. You have to, I had to be happy with who I was. And that's what I was always chasing is that next high. Mm-hmm. Would it be buy the new truck? Let it be the new fancy girlfriend. Sorry, but that's what I went after um, was labels. I wanted that label. I wanted the Beats headphones. And it, the ones that were knockoffs wouldn't work. But they sound just the same. Mm-hmm. I just don't have that label. Did you want to be liked by the people around you? Or did you want to be seen as, as someone who could live that kind of lifestyle? Or, or? Oh, when I was in my addiction at the deepest part... Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely, all I wanted was people to like me. Mm. I didn't like myself so much, and I had such low self-esteem that I would do anything that I had to that I felt would garner some appreciation, garner some attention. Um, You know, I've always been loud and obnoxious, but I guess I did it more back then just for the attention. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was that unhappy with who I was that... I needed that constant reassurance from others mm-hmm. that say, hey, I have value. Even if it is just making somebody laugh, it was, I needed that. Yeah. Or, Lou, look what he's got. Or, you know, and there's that's just what it was. But not no more. So how long were you, so let's say so you're 25. And what's that, like, maybe something abnormal. What's that process like? Well, for me, it was... You know, at 25, I was I was single. Um, I didn't have any children, um, and I just didn't have anything. And it took another well till I was 37 before I went to treatment. So it took another 10 years of just grinding myself into the ground. Um, and I, if I would have never hit my bottom, I don't think I would ever got out of it. But when I realized there was a problem, I just put it away and said, you know what, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm working. Um, you know, I have this fancy car. I have these fancy clothes. I have fancy friends. I go out to fancy dinners, you know, um, and that was my lifestyle, and I was content with it. I said, you know what, there's a problem here, but I'm not hurting anybody but me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I avoided it for a long time. And, and why do you think there was a problem? Were you, like, 
blacking out more than much more than your friends? Were you? Like, oh no, I was the, the shakes. Uh, more uh, than, yeah, I was the like, guy who could still drink. I was the guy that wanted to drink on a Tuesday night. Um, I was the guy that had booze at home. Uh, you know, my friends were further in their lives. You know, they were getting married. They were having children. They were doing a thing called saving for retirement. <laughs> Something you know that I wasn't doing. All the things that a twenty-five-year-old male should be taking pride in and doing with his life or what I thought they should be doing, I wasn't doing. You know, everybody else was moving forward and I was staying the 19-year-old, woohoo, let's have fun, no responsibilities. And just went, man, that might be not be might not be so right. <laughs> sure. So um but then I you know it just went on. And then when I had my daughter, uh thank goodness she has an amazing mom who doesn't have an addictive personality and is just an amazing woman because she saw what was going on and she said, no, I'm not staying with this type of guy. And she did what was best for our daughter and she left me. Um, but when Shelby was born, I really started to think there was something wrong. It's like, wait, I've got to be a dad. I need to make some changes. But it's a lot easier to say those things than actually make them happen. Sure. Um, I didn't know where to get help. I didn't know what help to get. I was embarrassed. Uh, There's a big stigma. I'm not an addict. Mm -hmm. I'm not a junkie. Right. I am. (laughs) And so are some of my biggest heroes. They just point it in the right direction today. Sure. But after Shelby was born, um, the self-loathing and the low self-esteem continued to go up because I still wasn't being a father. Mm -hmm. I wasn't being a productive man. Um, as what I saw as being a productive man, uh, you know, being a provider, being a caregiver, being a good dad, showing a good example. So my drinking went up, not down. Mm-hmm. I didn't slow down. I got worse because I disliked myself even more. Yeah, like that cycle of self-hatred into mm-hmm. escaping from responsibilities. Into- Absolutely. I shaved in the shower and I used to say, that. oh, I just like to shave in the shower. I shaved in the shower because I did not like looking in the mirror. As arrogant and as vain as I was, I didn't like to look at myself in the mirror. I hated it. I despised that person because I wasn't happy with where I was in my life. I wasn't happy with who I was in my life at that time. But I wasn't willing to ask for help. I was Aaron McGann. I was going to fix this problem, and the problem just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Um... Yeah, till what, 2016. Mm-hmm. That's when it all kind of, well, 2015, that's all when it kind of came to a head. Um, you know, everybody talks about their rock bottom, or I would have never had a rock bottom. Um, I have a very supportive family. I would have always had a job. I would have always had a way to continue to do what I was doing if I wanted to. And in 2000, October 23rd, 2015, I was on my way to a doctor's appointment to see what else was wrong with my body because I was drinking a fifth of vodka a day. So there's things shutting down in a 38-year-old male mm-hmm. if you're consuming that much booze. Mm-hmm. And while on that way to the doctor's, obviously I got in a wreck. Um, the accident wasn't my fault. I was a head-on collision. The other driver was a very young man. He turned out to be 23 um, and... Being a slope worker and being that vain, arrogant guy, I wanted to take all the fire first responder classes because I wanted to help. No, I just wanted the t-shirt because it looked good. 
and said I was on the fire team. But there's some really good training there. And I'd never had to use any of that training until that accident. When our cars came to a stop, I was able to get out of mine. He wasn't able to get out of his. And for about two minutes there, it was just me and him. Well, two minutes and 36 seconds is how long it took Captain Burnett to be on scene. It was right by the police right by the fire station so it was really quick response time but for that two minutes it was just me and that kid there was people around but in my eyes that was the only people there mm -hmm. and i was just talking to him you know keeping his head still saying who are you how many brothers and sisters what's your mom's name just to keep him coherent till help arrived and i didn't know it at the time but that was me at 23. Um, good-looking kid driving a fast sports car way too fast after being out all night drinking at 10 a.m. he's on his way back to town now I don't hold anything against that young man I'm actually extremely grateful because it changed my life but that was my rock bottom uh, realizing what could have happened I could have been dead we both could have been dead and it was 10 a.m. and if that accident would have happened at 10 p.m. I'd have been drunk. And how many times had I driven at 10 a.m. when I was still physically drunk? You know, it's easy to say, oh, I was just hungover. No, there's still that much alcohol in your system. The next morning, you were still legally drunk. Just because I could handle it doesn't change it. But that night before, I hadn't drank. It was weird. So that morning, it was just, uh, it was bad. Um, it was a really bad situation, and from October 23rd till about, well, I can tell you, till February 6th, I did everything I could to drink myself to death. I wasn't saying that, and I wasn't suicidal, but when you go from drinking a fifth a day to you're not going to work, and you're drinking two-fifths a day, you lose your job, you lose everything in your life, you're not even communicating with your wife or your child something's going on that's not you trying to work through it emotionally that is you destroying yourself well my mom and my wife got together and called me out on it and said you need to go to treatment i agreed but not being accountable i didn't look into it of course mm -hmm. so they did yeah. <laughs> um and i learned a very important lesson when somebody wants to get in treatment, we need to get them there now. Mm. Not a week down the road, not 10 days down the road. Mm -hmm. Not, we don't have a bed for you. Yeah. We need to get them in there now. Mm -hmm. The watershed um, is the treatment I went to. They're based out of Florida, but they have a treatment facility in Webster, Texas, close to my mom. My mom talked to them on the morning of the 7th. They had a bed for me, airline, reservations, and accommodations from my door to their door in less than 12 hours. I was on a plane February 8th and I was at their doors by February 9th in the morning because I was ready to go. They just made it happen. They jumped at it and said, get here. So I got on the plane on the 8th and definitely ordered my absolute vodkas on the plane, mm -hmm. which ironically on both flights down, they didn't charge me for my alcohol. Which was really weird. Mm -hmm. So I knew how much money I had in my account. I had enough to cover my drinks down there. 
they didn't charge me. I don't know. It was, yeah. I was like, all right, well, my last couple of drinks were free. Woohoo! Thank you. <laughs> so that's that was uh, that was the run in, and that's where it ended. Um, is when I got to Texas, I was uh, was done. I had just literally said, you know what? I've been running this for way too long, and I've been screwing it up. Teach me, you know. And I was open to whatever they told me. They told me how to do something. That's how I did it, because I wasn't running it right. Mm -hmm. So the running stopped about well, right there, eight thirty-eight on February ninth is the minute I walked into the intake office of the watershed and. One of my best friends to this day, Kim, was the uh, intake office lady that day and love her to death. And I'm still grateful because she had welcomed me with open arms and they were there to help and they were there to teach me what to do. So that's where we got to. And that's when we're to the sober part of Aaron's <laughs> life, I guess. So what do you think would have happened if it hadn't been so fast? Do you think you would have just kind of flaked out and been like, oh, I'll get to that eventually and just kind of gone back? Or do you think you like would have it was like, okay, we'll get you in in 10 days? Yeah, uh, even even that. Do you think? I believe I was to the point where I would have waited. Yeah. You were pretty but that's not always the case. I was ready to be done. Yeah. yeah. I genuinely was so tired that I was just done. I was done either way. But them being able to get me in... Um, do I think it would have made it, it, I know it makes a difference. I've seen it make a difference mm -hmm. in people. Oh yeah. The amount of time that they have to wait to get in mm -hmm. is the difference between life and death in some situations. Yeah. I, in one of my classes, we did go through, uh, kind of like the situation, especially in Alaska, mm -hmm. how difficult it is for somebody, especially like in rural Alaska, which you don't see this necessarily in its exact form in other states because Alaska is so big so you don't necessarily get the distance mm -hmm. um, you don't get like like the ratio of rural to non-rural you know to urban so there's a lot of situations where this occurs where somebody in rural Alaska is ready to get some help and it's like there's so many barriers to getting them in in any way that's a timely fashion between travel and open beds and it costs yeah. and just these several barriers to doing so. You know, maybe there's communication difficulties, like getting people in in a timely manner in Alaska is is really a challenge. And uh, they've pushed certain, like, I think, mental health legislation in the state to try to make things more accessible. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a detox facility open up here in Soldatna, which, you know, the thing about it is people, you're like, oh, we got this many beds and detox opening up in Soldatna, and I think it's, I don't remember the exact number, I wish I times did. Times it times ten, and it's no longer be enough beds. And, but <laughs> another interesting thing, though, is a little bit different than that, is that you say, okay, like, cool, six beds, or you say, cool, twelve beds, um, I think it's six, but the thing about it is, you compare those number of beds to the amount total in the state, it makes a difference because mm -hmm. there's just such a little bit. You know, you have 30 beds, 60 beds total in the state. Mm -hmm. You add six, you're adding, you know, 20, 10 percent, you know, just depending. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there has been, I mean, especially here in Soldatna, there has been like a good... Um, the, I actually took this class with uh, Dr. Sellers, who, you know, runs the oh, hospital. Yeah. She And she was, you know saying that you know these are there are barriers and that it does matter like you said like 
getting people in in a timely manner can make a big difference. So when people need to get in, we need to really be doing our best, making a priority to get them in. And so I just, uh, yeah, I think it is, uh, you know, something that we, as uh, as we become more aware of uh, kind of a tangent here as well, as we become more aware of addiction and its impacts, and we start to see, like, what are some of the differences, what are some of the things we need to prioritize? One of the things I think people and, you know, all of us need to keep on our minds is we need to be prioritizing mental health in ways that truly do make impacts. And one of those is having beds available, having ways to get people in, and prioritizing getting them in in a timely manner, you know. Anyway, it's cool. Well, it's the, it's uh, interesting you say that. Well, and then the other resources. Our community is amazing when it comes to being open about substance problems. You know, I have no qualms saying I'm an addict. I love the fact that I'm an addictive personality, but our community has great support here. There is a meeting literally daily in this town, somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is sober living homes in this town. Yeah. You know, we're lucky to have those things. And the people that are parts of these groups are so open and willing to communicate. That's something I've never seen anywhere else. And I'm grateful to live in this little town because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't, I don't believe that people in this community have such a stigma about it as other places because mm-hmm. it is such a small town mm-hmm. and it's so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, prevalence. No, it's interesting you say that because I was listening to this thing the other day. I'm not, I'm really trying not, I'm truly not trying to like suck up to Dr. Sellers, but she was in another class of mine, like as a guest speaker talking so about why addiction. why is the picture behind you over? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Uh, no. But she, and I had heard this before, but it's it was interesting to hear again and connect in a new way. Because essentially, you know, the crack e- epidemic, you know, that was that was urban, that was low minority in race and minority in socioeconomic status. I mean, that was like mostly poor black people in inner city places. I mean, it, it, it went other places. Rednecks in Kenai, Alaska. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. Yep, we did that one. Really? But, oh, gosh. Yes, absolutely. That was here. So, so this wasn't her point, but it's kind of what I connected in some ways was the crack epidemic in a large, to a large extent was, uh, affecting poor black Mm -hmm. people. Oh, absolutely. Um, and frankly, some people cared, most didn't, most really just no big deal, you know, you know, not hurting me, it's hurting those people, the minority, blah, blah, blah. Well, then the opioid epidemic comes around. And oh my gosh, middle class white people yeah. are getting addicted. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh wow, it put a whole new perspective on addiction. It was mm-hmm. like, addiction does not discriminate against like class, race, etc. Mm-hmm. Like it is like that disposition is there in, in a lot of different groups and it will and can affect these different groups. And the fact of the matter is that middle class and I'm not trying to make some political statement here. I'm just saying oh, middle-class white people started getting addicted, and oh my gosh, we better do something about it. Oh, you know. And now we have, we do have some legislation around there. There's like, the, oh, it's an epidemic, you know. Yeah. Like there are some big things pushing forward. And just the amount of research that's come to fruition in the last like 20 years, like since like the late 90s, early 2000s, versus like. The 80s to the, like, from the early 80s to 2000. Like, I'd be, I don't know what the exact graph number here is, but I bet it's fairly large. (laughs) Right, right. Definitely change. Yeah, and I mean, (laughs) with the expansion of technology, you know, and stuff like that as well, but, I mean, and just the funding that's gone into it and everything like that, like, 
I think there's research that would absolutely back that. Sure. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I think what's interesting, too, is, like, if we are kind of smarter in thinking, like, what's going on? Like, what can we do? Like, now is kind of our time where people are listening. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or, you know? And so it's things like all these other, you know, really, like, the community, like you said. Like, it's so prevalent now. People are, are Everybody can forced to it. listen almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody can connect with it in some form or fashion. Everybody's affected by it. But the one thing I see a lot of that really, that I hear a lot that makes, makes well, not uncomfortable, but when people, when I say I'm an addict or I have an addictive personality, people want to say they're sorry. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear I'm sorry. I am grateful. Because I can name off a whole bunch of people that have addictive personalities that are doing amazing things. Mm-hmm. Tony Robbins. If that guy wanted to shoot up heroin, he'd be living under a dumpster shooting up every day. But that's not where he channeled it. He channeled it into something else. That guy has an addictive personality. Arnold Schwarzenegger. His dad's 5'11", 170 pounds. Arnold didn't get that big because he was naturally built like that. He had an addictive personality. He loved it. He got endorphins out of it. That is an addictive personality just channeled in a different direction. So be grateful. That is my biggest problem is people, oh, I'm an addict. Why are you shrugging your shoulders and putting your head down? Put your shoulders back and your head up and be proud of it. Run with it. Use it. You know, the only people that have ever changed this planet were addict, addictive personalities. Not one normal, oh, I'm content, changed anything. You know, so that's why when I hear, oh, I'm sorry you're an addict. No, I'm not. I'm grateful. Well, it's almost like you have a dedicated personality in a sense. It's like, yeah, once you get on board with something, you're 100%. Oh, yeah, I'm in it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's like, well, when that goes down the wrong road, it's beautiful. But when it goes down the right road, it's beautiful. Absolutely. And then we, you know, people that have addictive personalities are lucky. We are very lucky because when we put our mind to something, we do it. There's no doubt about it. One of my favorite addicts is Nikola Tesla. I'm a huge fan of the guy. He had everything stolen from him. All of his work taken away from him, no credit given to him. But when he died, where did they find him? They found him in his workshop, working on his next invention. He was constantly working. He didn't let what happened to him steer him away from what his goal was. He continued, and he died in pursuit of that goal. That's somebody who'd been kicked and kicked and kicked and kicked again. But yet he kept getting up and he kept following. It was, uh, I might be wrong. One of the persons that stole some of his stuff was Edison, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any cars these days named the Edison. I'll just say that. <laughs> Elon Musk didn't name his cars the Edison. <laughs> There's another prime example of a guy who has an addictive personality. The first couple of years of Tesla, how many of those cars got returned? How many mistakes were made? How many manufacturers sent him the wrong parts? How many hours did that guy put into making that company what it is today? Sleepless night after sleepless night after sleepless night. I saw two of them in Kenai, Alaska. This is no longer. I think there's a Tesla charging port up at uh, uh, the Brew 602, the train coffee place on your way out of uh, town. I think there's a Tesla charging port there. Really? Really? What? Yeah, it oh might just goodness. be because there's the blue 
blue one that the owner of that restaurant owns. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. He tax right off. <laughs> he right but off. he does. The, I believe the owner of that restaurant does own oh, one sure, of the Teslas sure. that are in town. Interesting. Okay. But that's an addictive personality at its prime. Why not use that? Yeah. You know, so get happy about it. I do. You so have to kind of segue and maybe and we might move back and forth, okay. you know. But uh, you have right. I mean, you are wearing a sweatshirt that says "Racing for Recovery." Yes. Um, can you tell us about that? I actually don't know anything about it. I okay. Didn't, before um, before this, I didn't watch the video that you mentioned earlier. Uh, before oh we were recording, I didn't watch the video. I didn't know anything about it. So okay. this is um, all new to me. Well, Racing's Recovery is a. Uh, a community outreach program that me and some of the guys that were in my program at Wildwood actually came up with as a class project. Said, how do we take motorsports and get it and use it as a means to help people find recovery? Um, it started out with a, I have a 1964 MG Roadster, and we were just going to build that car. And take it to races and put recovery on it just to get people to ask. You and some of the you and some guys that you knew in Wildwood. Some of the guys that were in Wildwood uh, helped me come up with the idea, and then you guys were gonna. I guess. I'm sorry. Yeah, we were. I have to do it again. Okay. For class (laughs) two days ago, (laughs) I toured Wildwood. Oh, great! Yeah, toured the whole place. It was uh, fun. Fun to tour. Yeah. Wouldn't want to live there, but actually. Without consuming too much time, one of the things I thought was really cool, so it was forensic psychology class, so we've been studying prisons and like some of the mental health services that will be offered there, and so when I, I got there and like, oh, first floors all for substance abuse, people mm-hmm. live there, blah, 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 that wasn't surprising. I was like, okay, I've read about things like that, not surprised. One of the things that did surprise me and that I thought was super cool was they have these programs where inmates, they earn some trust and everything, they will, but I mean, they're serving prison time, you know, they will... Um, like they do a bunch of like really involved maintenance, like on these vehicles, they, yep. you know, using, doing like true full on like servicing, like heavy machinery, big yep. trucks. Like they do like the inmates do like 90% of the maintenance there. They have some supervisors to where like, there's like a supervisor, like employee, electrician, employee, plumber. Yep. But outside of that, the guys that are serving time in there are doing most all of the work. They're, I mean, they're doing welding. They're using these big, like, saws and, like, big equipment, you know, and, like, construction. And so I think, like, they say, oh, we have the hobby shop, you know, and I'm not, like, condescending to that. But I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But I wasn't surprised, you know. Oh, we have this substance abuse treatment. That was not surprising. But then, like, oh, we have this place where these inmates are coming and doing, like, some real manual and getting to use some technologies yep. and tools that you know are are a little bit different than one might mm-hmm. think occurs you know so yeah, anyway was, was it something like that were you were you guys doing something along those no, lines or no it was uh it was just a me brainstorming how do i incorporate my love for motorsports and my recovery and i noticed that i wasn't going to as many of the traditional meetings um i was spending a lot more time in my shop and guys were coming over and we started started turning into it was every Thursday night at six, we were showing up at my shop and we're working on the MG. You know, we didn't follow any specific meeting agenda format, right. or format. We just if somebody had something to talk about, we'd talk about it. If nobody had anything to talk about, we worked on the MG. And 
it just continued to progress a little bit. And then at the end of this last racing season, um, my family has been running, been racing in Alaska since we got up here. I did some research last week, and one McGann has been racing every year since 1968. At least one every year wow. somewhere in the state. So it's okay. something we've been doing forever. And my dad had his sprint car out for the last races in September. My family's not a big huggers, I love you, I'm proud of you type of family. Uh, and the last race of the last day, he let me take his car out. Um, this is something I'd never been in the car before. It's something that I always hated growing up because I always wanted it but never was allowed to touch it. Um, he said, you know what, you've earned this. You've, you're almost three years sober today. I'm very proud of you. Take the car. I'm like, Dad, I can't take your car out. I can't afford to fix it. If you wreck it, you wreck it. You've wrecked a lot of my stuff in the past. <laughs> At least wreck this one, and I'm watching. I'm looking forward to it. So I took his car out, and I did 15 laps, and it was great, and it was this awesome bonding moment with Dad, and, you know, hey, I've really, I think this is working because I've got a relationship with my father. Well, the next week, I'm out at his shop because we've turned it into, that's how me and him communicate. We hang out around the race car. Um, we're pulling the engine out of his car, and he says, you know, Aaron, I really, this racing for recovery, if you really think this is something that can work and it can really help people, I want to help. I said, okay, Dad, what do you want to do? You know, you want to come out and help on the MG? And he said, no, um, I'm giving you that car. Now, and I was like, whatever, Dad, you know, you're not giving me your car. No, he said, no, Aaron, that sprint car is yours. Um, I'm proud of you. I want you to do this. And it was, it was like a big hug from Dad. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, um, thanks, Dad, for an old chassis. He has two, granted. He didn't give me his only car. He gave me the old one that was a pile of parts in the corner, but it was still, if you really want to do this, I love you, I'm proud of you, and I'm going to support you. So that was in October 1st of this year, of 2018. And by October 23rd, I had went from a pile of parts to a complete car. Uh... I talked to some of the other guys that race, one of my sponsors, um, RPMs. I talked to Mellish, the owner of that. I said, John, I need a front axle so I can take put this car together for trunk or treats. I want to get this car in public. And parts just started showing up. And we got a car together. Granted, it didn't have an engine in it. But we do, we were ready for trunk or treats at the Boys and Girls Club. We had 300, I'm sorry, 438 kids get in that car at trunk or treat. To get a photo but it was 438 parents standing there looking up and seeing recovery on the side of a car on a beautiful race car I mean this isn't an old beat-up El Camino this is and don't get me wrong I love old beat-up El Camino <laughs> super fast and one of my favorite drivers runs an old beat-up El Camino but it's a fancy shiny race car and it's easy to communicate around and I was still up in the air if I knew this was gonna work or not and during those, in one of those 438 kids, one of their dads was just looking at the car. He turned out to be grandpa. 
but grandpa was just looking and and he started asking questions about the car and being a counselor like I have been, I've learned how when people have something they need to talk about, when there's something going on that that mean needed to say. I said, sir, I don't know you, but what's going on? You know, why? What can I do? And he just he said, you know, I found my kid in the bathroom with a needle in his arm. I don't know what to do. And it was the fact that that man was able to say something to me. And, you know, it was the car. It was easy. It wasn't an uncomfortable situation for him. But he was able to dump his guts to a complete stranger and say, my family needs help. Mm -hmm. My son needs help. But more so, I need help. What do I do? And it was him asking for that that made me go, you know what? This is worth it. This is going to work. And... We haven't stopped since. We, you know, we did the trunk or treats. We did Salteshi trails. We, um, community event after community event. Uh, we went down to Homer for the coast and through Kenai, and we dedicated the car to the Coast Guard. Went down and matched the vinyl to the Coast Guard cutter, and we did Sweeney's parade. Um, we did the sports show. Anything we can do to get that car out to where it's just sitting there. It's easy to walk up and talk about a car. But they don't know that that man dumped his guts to me. They don't know that I took his phone number and got his son to a meeting. Mm -hmm. Nobody else knows that, but he does. You know, and his kids do okay. We all make mistakes, but we were able to open up that mm -hmm. line to recovery for that one kid mm -hmm. because it was an easy conversation. Now, helping that kid's great. But knowing that I helped that dad get some sleep that night, that's worth it all day long. I mean, I'm grateful for every addict or every person with an addictive personality we can help. But I'm more grateful for the moms and the dads and the brothers and the grandparents and the people that are also affected, mm -hmm. getting them some help. Mm -hmm. Because me being a drunk wasn't just killing me. It was killing my mom, my dad. The relationship with my wife, the relationship with my daughter. Mm -hmm. So many people were affected by my choices that if I can help other people find, help a mom find an Al Anon meeting, you know, help a child find some help, you know, having a kid willing to come up and talk and say, This is what my dad's dealing with, or this is where my mom's at, and I'm scared. That's what we want to do. We want it to be a comfortable way for people to come up and communicate and go around in a circle really fast, which is a bonus for me, but, <laughs> you know, it's the community outreach and having an easy place for people to communicate is what we're doing with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's it. That's where yeah, we're at. That's, that's incredible. So, I think that is, uh, I like what you said about uh, the just being able to open that conversation because I think... There's a lot of uh, unknown around those conversations. Absolutely. You know, like, you can see, you can see them kind of going both ways at times, you know, trying to breach a conversation and just other person maybe not being very receptive. Yeah. And, and the amount so of resources that are here in this community. Yeah. I went to Texas for treatment and spent an extremely a lot of money 
but I could have went to Serenity House and learned the exact same things. Because I've been there. I've spoke there. And the classes they teach are the same classes I was taught in Texas. Really? You know, I, I don't know if they have a Trigger Tuesday, but I'm sure they cover triggers someday of the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thursdays, maybe. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, it's getting those resources out. <laughs> Trigger Tuesday. Letting people know that there are treatments here locally. You know, that there's meetings they can go to, not just for the person who's suffering, mm -hmm. for the mom, for the dad. Mm -hmm. You know, those people need support, too. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even a little bit more than the person that's suffering because they're not self-medicating. Sure. They're staying up. My mom lost so many nights sleep over what I was doing with my life. One of the greatest gifts I have given my mom is a good night's sleep. And she's told me that. She doesn't lose sleep over me anymore. And I didn't realize how much she was affected until I got sober. It took me a couple of years before I finally realized, wow, I was really hurting everybody, including myself. So um, so, so you, had, you kind of drew that insight a couple of years after being clean, meaning took a while. What were, uh, what were some of the things? What was your... Uh, because I know we were talking earlier before we started uh, recording. Um, your 30 days sober didn't look the same as 90 days. And oh, my one kind day of been sober. Changing. Yeah, no, the, the growth in sobriety and recovery has been amazing. You know, um, the day I got to treatment, I didn't believe for a second I was going to ever not use some substance. I don't know, and then a month into it, I held on to that one-month sobriety chip like it was a gold ticket, you know? And Willy Wonka was coming around the corner. Life was good. Mm -hmm. At 60 days, I'm floating on the ceiling, you know? Really? I'm two months sober. I'm yeah. the happiest guy in the world. Everything's amazing. Go, go recovery, you know? Six months, I hated everything. Really? <laughs> No, in six I mean, months was... sobriety, I was I was grateful. My life was going in the right direction, but at six months, I started to notice things that, you know, the guys I went to high school with. I've got friends that are getting ready to retire, because they went from Nagiski High School straight to Tesoro. Thirty-eight, thirty-nine years old, getting ready to retire. Twenty years, doing good. So you know, I started to learn what jealousy was, um, sure, and what my emotions were, and. I always thought I just disliked every guy I ever met. No. If a guy comes in the room, he's dressed nice, he's a good-looking guy, I'm jealous of that person. I don't dislike him. Sure. I, you know, I consider it I'm jealous a little bit. Oh. But I had things I didn't know. Um, and it was just a constant learning. Um, Sounds like you're getting some insights that took a little bit, maybe a little bit more, like, I don't know if it's like higher reasoning or what, but it sounds like you were getting some insights that took a little bit more effort, more exposure, oh. more, I guess, like pondering, yeah. perhaps. And, you know, the meetings. And those um, were hard. When I got back after two months, I only stayed in Texas for 64 days. Quite a while. They wanted me to stay another six months, 60, or something, six months yeah. so that I could break some habits. But I made a deal with my counselor. I said, you write down what you want me to do when I get home, and I will follow it. 
And that's what I did. She said, Aaron, I want you to have an appointment with an aftercare program before you leave my office. Okay. Okay. I called, got one at Cicada. I had an appointment the day I got home. I want you to go do this. I want you to do this, 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 and this. I was, I liked to gamble when I was a drinker. So if you give me odds and say, Aaron, your odds are going up 10% if you attend a support group meeting twice a week, I'm going to those. You go to your relapse prevention class, you're up another 20%. That's 30% chance. I'm going to all of them. Good odds. So, yeah. Well, good odds. You know, when I got told, to, when I came yeah. home, I met with my counselor, Cindy, and she said, well, you need relapse prevention. You need to be here twice a week. But we offer classes four times a week. I was there four times a week. If I wasn't at Cicada in a class, I was at a meeting. There was the first 90 days home, so first four months, so the first six months sober, I was at a meeting or I was at a group every single day without fail. Not one day in that gap did I not go to something recovery related because that's where I felt safe. That's where I knew I wasn't going to go back to old habits. I knew that's where I wasn't going to run into old friends. So that's what I did. And I just never left there. I noticed uh, after I graduated from Cicada's program, I stayed around. And I started facilitating groups. I didn't know Cindy was uh, my guardian angel at the time, but she was tracking all those hours. And after about another six months, because it just became routine, I wanted to go. I liked being in front of the class. I liked talking. So after about six months, she said, Aaron, you've got enough hours to get your counselor tech license. Hmm. I went, huh? She said, yeah, you've been facilitating groups for six months take some classes so she got me lined up to go take my classes and I got my counselor tech license cool and after That's I got awesome. my license she uh, a couple weeks later she said well we'd like to offer you a job wow nice. what <laughs> how do I do this um okay and I started working as a counselor tech for Cicada and went out to Wildwood and just started logging hours um, recovery was that first year that was all I did was recovery sure if I wasn't at a meeting I was with somebody else in recovery I was only with people that had time you know because I, a lot of people call them sponsors I like to call them mentors um, because I have a lot of them so I surrounded myself by people that do what I want to do mm -hmm. you know if you want to learn how to do something surround yourself with the people that do it that's how you become good at it. So that's what I was for about the first, for the first year was a lot of meetings, a lot of support groups, a lot of emotions up and down, back and forth, learning what anger was, you know, learning what fear was, learning that fear is something that causes me to do a lot of things. What a surprise. <laughs> oh, you know, and I learned how to handle those, learning to communicate. Um, I was extremely passive in my using. I would uh, let people walk on me very regularly, and I would never say anything. Learning how to deal with that, learning how to voice my opinion and speak up for myself, um, that took a while. And it's been a constant change, constantly. It's constantly growing from day to day. Um, you know, because I only have today, 
I could slip and fall on a bottle of vodka on my way out of here. I don't see it happening. That would be ironic. But it could happen. <laughs> <laughs> that would suck. Dude. It would yeah. be bad. That would be I would bad. come back for a second podcast if in about an hour. If you slipped on that, <laughs> if you slipped on a bottle of vodka and like got like super injured, I'd probably like take that bottle and put like a Coca-Cola bottle next to it. <laughs> yeah. Just to like, nah. yeah, make nah. like lessen the irony. <laughs> <laughs> So That's no, I think, too it's much, a, I think recovery is something that is constantly evolving for everybody. And for every individual, it's going to be different. Um, and I use recovery very loosely. Just because I'm the one that used doesn't mean that my mom's recovery date's any different than mine. Same date. You ask my mom what day I got sober, she can tell you down to the minute when I checked in. Because that's the first time she felt safe. You know, that recovery... Is for everybody, and it's for a lot of different things than just substance. Um, we just partnered with Frontier Community Services. We're going to do a pilot program with some of their consumers. I hate to say that term, but that's what they're called. Um, to where they come out to the pits for the day. Because when I worked for Frontier, I know that the clients I was with, the more I got them out of the house, the happier they were. That's recovery. That's moving forward. That's becoming a better version of yourself. And that's what I think recovery is to me, is becoming the best version that I can be with the limited time I have left. You know, I'm 41. If I'd have started this when I was 21, where would I be? But recovery is just being a better version of yourself, no matter what that, what that looks like to an individual. I don't care. You know, I put people's dates on the car. Um, there's a panel on the race car. And advertising is what pays for races. But I told my sponsors, this panel is just for sobriety. This is just for recovery dates. I have mom's dates on there. I've got kids' dates on there. My date's on there. You know, if it's a date that sticks out as the day that your life changed, I want it on the car. That's what recovery is to me. It's not Aaron got sober. It's we all made a change in our life. And whatever that change is, that's what I want. And I don't care what it takes to get it. Let's just help them get it, you know. So that's what we're doing, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. So, are you uh, are you still doing that today? The with Cicada? I'm not. Okay. No, I uh, I left Cicada a year ago at the end of this month. Uh -huh. um, I had an opportunity to start my own business. Oh wow! And I needed to take that opportunity. Yeah. Um, was the next challenge, you know, mm -hmm. when I was in treatment, I said, I want to be a counselor and I'm going to do this. And I did it. Yeah, yeah. And I busted totally. my butt to get there. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity came out to start a, a uh, maintenance company. I did. And I only have one and it's only me. And I've got one contract, but it's nice to be a business owner today mm -hmm. and be able to put as much time and effort into racing for recovery as I am able That's to That's awesome. Um, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. Mm -hmm. I am always going to be grateful to Cindy and Cicada for that opportunity because they they took a chance. Mm -hmm. You know, and I learned so much, and they've got some amazing staff. Um, yeah, we did a podcast at Cicada. Like a, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was really pretty interesting, yeah. yeah. You know, some of the people that work there, Charlie... Charlie's funny, man. Maybe he'll listen to this and be like, whoa, come on. But he's like, he's so mellow. I mean, he's maybe not. he's not as mellow as no, he, he seems. He's like, he's like, 
Sup guys, yeah. how you doing? I mean, he wasn't that casual, but you just get like you just feel so calm around this. Yeah, he's very down to earth. Yeah, he's very down to earth, and he's passionate about what he does, mm. and he has a, a burn inside of him to help other people. And you know, me and him don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. We sure. really don't. Right. You know, our opinions on the matters far as you can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but. At our cores, we both go, you know what? That person has a burn to help others. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter that we don't see eye to eye on everything. Mm -hmm. You know, we still say, what's up? You know, like, (laughs) what's up, up, Charlie? How's life? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. So, but yeah, no, it's it's been a ride, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine your relationships have improved drastically. Some, yeah, and some have went. So, I never knew how to be in a relationship. Right, yeah. Um, I was very self-destructive, so I had to learn, you know, it's not okay to flirt with the waitress when you're on a date. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that. Yeah. I just <laughs> thought I was getting another date. Right, right. <laughs> What's better than one date? Two, Two dates. dates. <laughs> you know? Um, Kobe, you would, bro. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that guy. No. But it's, it was there was a lot of learning on uh, communication, how to yeah. communicate, how to, you know, standing up for myself was a big one. Um, I was always a pushover, especially like with my father and my father and I's relationship today. I look at him more like my best friend than I do an authoritative figure anymore. And it used to be he was an authoritative figure because I owed him money or I was hiding something from him, or I didn't tell him about this or that. But today, I just call him, what's going on? Oh yeah, I did this. You know, and it's, it's being able to communicate was a big one. And being honest and accountable, having accountability with the relationships I have today is why I have the relationships I have today. My mama calls and she says, Aaron, you're gonna do this. She knows I'm gonna do it. Mm-hmm. She might not like it. And when I told her I was getting in a sprint car, she said, no, please, no. And it's not a safe thing, but, yeah. you know, the relationships I have today are much better because I'm accountable. Not because those people changed, because I changed. You know, my daughter is 13 years old. She doesn't need dad right now. She's a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. just dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I asked her the other day, I said, Shelby, what are the two things you know about your dad? You love me and you're proud of me. I said, as a girl, that's all you need to know right now. Is your dad loves you, and he's proud of you. Wow. Do you think dad makes mistakes? Absolutely, dad, but you're not a drunk today. Because she knows. She knew from the minute I got on the plane, I told her where I was going and why. And I thought I'd been hiding all those years. She knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Little kids see it. But she's watched. And we have a relationship today that is built on trust and honesty. And I know that I put a big stop on the chances of her following in my steps by being honest with her, by taking her to the occasional meeting, by telling her the things that I did. You know, I don't go into details with some of it, but sure, she knows that her dad wasn't a good guy. Does she know the things her dad did? Nope. Right, right. You know, um, there's. I had to break a lot of relationships, too. I yeah. had to end a bunch. Yeah. Um, but those were a lot easier to end than I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, they ended them for themselves. Right, right. You know, since I was no longer the one making the relationship happen, yeah. they just 
faded away. Kind of settled mm-hmm. out, yeah. You know, which is great mm-hmm. for me, for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had to make a lot of amends. You know, I, I thought I had to come back and apologize to everybody. I don't need to apologize. I'm just continue doing what I'm doing and try and make it right. Mm-hmm. You know, that I we joked about the waitress and the second date, but that was one of my ways of making myself feel better about Aaron was always to have some girlfriend and always have a new girlfriend. You know, and I was never nice to, I never treated women the way they deserve to be treated. So I've had a lot of, uh, yeah, I got to own that. That was me. Yeah. Totally did that, you know. Um, but at least I'm able to do that today. So mm-hmm. yeah. those relationships are amazing, yeah. You guys got any final questions? I feel like this has been very, uh, uh, except, for, except for this, except for what I'm doing now. Yeah, I feel as if there has been, like, so much good information just mm-hmm. consistently coming no, and we haven't like stuck except for maybe something I've said we haven't stuck on any one thing for like oh my gosh let's, I'm still let's stuck move on it along snacks, you know dude, honestly. yeah that's the deal with those they got all these good snacks the errands are restless yeah, <laughs> yeah. Restless. we got all I'm these good snacks <laughs> we got all these good snacks and we're not allowed to have any of them mm-hmm. according to Eric <laughs> Eric's really the wall my barrier right now he's my barrier to my snacks is an issue. I'll bring me. snacks next time, I promise. Thanks, man. <laughs> so if anybody wanted to be, I, I guess, if anybody wanted to be not necessarily involved, but I guess know more about Racing for Recovery, what's uh, what's a good way to They do can something? find us on social media for sure, you know, RFR, Racing for Recovery on Facebook. Um, RFR, Racing yep, for Recovery. Racing for Recovery. Uh, they can contact me directly. I mean, you're welcome to call me on my cell phone. It's 907-398-1726. 398-1726? 1726 okay. is my cell. Um, you know, maybe you just have a couple questions. Maybe you have a kid you want to drop off and make wrench. We'll make them do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's getting people out. If you've yeah. got questions, man, call and ask us. Find us on social media. Yeah. It's easy. So you guys still work on cars? Like, as it's because I know you were doing the working on the vehicle, the yep, roadster. The yep. Thursday night. Thursday. Do you guys still do something? Thursday some... night is shop night, 6 to 8 p.m. So you still do that? Absolutely. Cool. Because um, one of the things I think is, uh, and I'm not saying that meetings are inferior to what you're doing, I'm saying this seems different. It's different. You're coming around uh, a topic that everybody can kind of approach without much awkwardness or without, yes. there's no, I, I guess I would say, there, doesn't, there seems mm-hmm. to be a smaller amount of vulnerability coming around working on the car and maybe yeah. not saying anything than there is about really sitting around in that circle and you know, looking around and thinking, do I talk? Do I not? Mm-hmm. You know, listening, figuring it all out. I just—it seems like there's an approach there that may be easier for some to make yep. than they would in another situation. And that's what it is too. It's you know, I've had people that say, well, I just don't like a traditional meeting. Really? Yeah. Here's my address, and then they—you can just see the blank look on their face that, oh wow, I—I I was just saying that because I didn't want to go to a meeting, not because <laughs> I really didn't like them. Um, I just don't want to go. I you think know? the cool and thing about what you're doing too is like, you're sitting in those meetings, you know, and it comes to your turn. Like, you are the focal point. Like, the attention's there. And you Whereas need that. now, like, the car is kind of more the focal point, and you're kind of just, I mean, you're still getting to do, like, you're add still your story getting and some do of it. stuff. I and, bet you're still getting, I, I, not to like totally disagree, but I bet you're still getting a lot of times where you're the 
where you and what's going on in your life is the center of things. Yeah, and, and without, happen. you know, I got those, I the meetings, the traditional meetings, guys, without them, I would not be sitting here. Right, right. Would yeah. not be here sure. without them. Sure. Um, just the shop night is a way for people to see that there is more that you can go out and do. You know, maybe you don't fit in with this group or that group or this group. Maybe you don't fit in with us, but you meet somebody and you hang out with them. You know, I've got guys that made it a couple nights, went to one shop night and then met another racer and is now working on their car. Sure. But it's just helping people make connections in the community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't yeah. have to just stay in that one little spot. Yeah. Get out. Meet the people. Learn new things, learn certain skills, yes. feel a sense of accomplishment. Get a new mentor once a, of, a month. A lot of things <laughs> going on there. Well, yeah. Plus, and as you mentioned, there's even less excuses. So, you know, if, if I was thinking, I don't like to go to meetings, I want to be working or whatever. Come on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I got exactly. a spot for you. Exactly. And when people are there like, well, Aaron, how can you do that? You know, so you might get robbed. So... How many times, how, how much have I stolen my life from individuals? Not, when I say steal, not um, material things, but how much have I taken away? You know, and I have a little tiny shop. Lots of sleep. Lots of if sleep. If we put that at $5 an hour yeah. of sleep, you're in a lot of debt. I'm in a lot of debt. <laughs> yeah, sure. Dude, so, I, I pay more than $5 an hour for a good sleep. <laughs> I <could> too, actually. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a little tiny shop. My bad, and Kobe. We don't have <laughs> We are so a little up on your sleep price because five would be great. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. But you know, I don't have expensive tools in there, and I even if I did, the amount whatever is in my shop, I would yeah. gladly give away to say I have somebody come to me in five years and say, Aaron, just the time I spent on the MG opened up some doors. Mm -hmm. It got me to where I was more comfortable going to a normal, going to a meeting. Because mm -hmm. I've got to go to those meetings, guys. Those things right. are key. Yeah. Support groups and a traditional meeting, whichever direction you go, right. I don't care. I'm not pushing an agenda with either one of them, but without them, I wouldn't be here. I know that. So you've been working on the MG for how long now? Oh, I got Gertie in May of last year. So, okay, so she's just so about a year. You ever drive her around? Oh, I've been through two engines uh, and all okay. sorts of parts, uh, yeah. Right on. No, right now she's just uh, up on, we're putting in new floorboards, new floor pans, a um, bunch of sheet metal work, and just going through it, just to update it a little bit. Nice. And it's nice. It's fun to do. So that's about it. MG's fun. Yeah, that is cool. Um I wanted a Shelby. I'm never going to get a real one. So yeah. I'm not going to buy a kit car. <laughs> yeah. How, are, the, are those just ridiculously expensive? Yeah. The one I want? Yeah. No, not the... I want the original Ace Cobra, which what's the AC Ace, which is an aluminum body British sports car from 63 to 67. And they're a half a million dollars. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. But I can buy an MG that... Is a British steel-bodied car for two grand. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And have the roadster feel. Yeah, granted, sure. I don't have Shelby power, but sure. who cares? Yeah, I yeah. got Stuart Little's car. I'm happy. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> People ask what it looks like. That's why I remember Stuart Little. They're like, yeah. Like his little red car. Yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> nice. Right on. That's awesome. Uh, if there were... A couple things that you would let's let's just take it two part I guess if you were to recommend something to somebody who's more or less at 
rock bottom now. What would you say to them? Or they're just like uh, pretty deep in their addiction and they, what would you want to say? And let's say they're somewhat receptive to help. Like what would you want to hear at that point? I love you. Yeah. You have value. I'm here for you. So that would be it. I want to try and tell them they need to go to this meeting or that meeting. I just say, I love you. I'm here for you. And when you're ready, let me know. And I'll do anything to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me personally, that was a big one to be when, and I still, Kim opened that door at the watershed and said, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. She meant it. And I believed her. And if I had that opportunity with somebody today, I would just tell them I love them. And it's, it's, you, you've got value. Mm-hmm. Don't give up on yourself. Because so many people give up on themselves and say it's not worth it. You know, I've already done this, this, and this. Yeah. You know, and my biggest thought is if, you've, if you're able to live through doing that, what's going to stop you from taking over? And what's going to stop you from doing great things? Nothing. Mm-hmm. So I love you and I'm here for you would be the first ones because I don't think they hear that enough. I know I didn't and I like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, give them a big hug. Talk about random weird getting used to. Go to a meeting with a bunch of dudes. We all hug at the end of it. Love yeah. you, man. It's kind of yeah. awkward when you're getting hugged by a big biker that you wouldn't have wanted to meet in an alley in the dark five years earlier but he's come here kid (laughs) (laughs) let me hug you he means this well I know he means well (laughs) right Right. so yeah give him a hug tell him that they're they have value and we're here for them Mm because there is lots of support there's lots of groups out there willing to help you know and it's just helping them find that yeah because something's going to click. It's just helping them find that thing that clicks. Mm-hmm. For me, it was motorsports. And on odds, telling me if I did this, this, and this, it helped me. That's what I needed. I needed percentages. And that's what worked. But for somebody else, maybe it's knitting. You know, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's they just like the solitude of sitting in a room, listening to quiet music and knitting. And it helps them clear their heads. Who knows? But they don't know that till they t- try. You know, go to a meeting. Some of the best people I've ever met. Absolutely, some of the best people I've ever met. You know, when I came home from treatment, I got that exact same feeling or that exact same welcoming that I got when I checked into treatment. I walked through that door. They didn't know me from Adam, but they said, "Hey, how's it going? Have a seat." You know, and when I left that building, I took half a dozen really awkward hugs because everybody was just grateful I was still making it. I was still alive and I was willing to try. So it was, I love you, Aaron. Thanks for coming out. One of he, my very first sponsor, he was at that first meeting and he said, you know what? I've known your family a long time and I love you and I'm grateful you're here. And to have that come from a dirty old biker that I know I used to buy stuff from and know that he's doing so well. Yeah. That was a good feeling, and being able to tell people that would be what I'd want to tell them. Yeah. That'd be it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Aaron. It's uh, been great to be able to hear uh, hear your story. Um, it sounds like you're doing really awesome things, especially uh, you know with Racing for Recovery. Um, 
So thank you so much. This was uh, Eric and Aaron and Kobe, and as always, uh, you and I for the Kenai.